You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. We hope that this podcast is a helpful resource in your daily walk with Christ. Now, here's today's sermon. Let's go to the back to the book of Job. The book of Job, we're, we're going to cover chapters 16 and 17 tonight. Last week we covered chapter 14, or I'm sorry, chapter 15. I had planned to cover 15, 16, 17, and obviously we did not make it. Um, so I hope you're learning something. And there, there may be a human part of us that says, um, okay, it's kind of a similar thing that's happening. You know, we, we talked, we, Eliphaz, now between Eliphaz and uh, Zophar and Bildad, we've got these three guys basically telling Job the same thing and Job kind of responding in similar ways. Um, but if there, if there was no, if it wasn't worth going through chapter by chapter, then God wouldn't have given us all these chapters, right? Uh, it's inspired and, uh, and it's a revelation. I was listening to a podcast uh, just today and he, the, the preacher was talking about the Word of God and, and what it is. Uh, he, he called it the seven wonders of the Word. And um, I'm on number two as far as I got in the sermon. But the first one was revelation, that it is, that it is God's revelation. So even this book, even though it, it's the story of the life of Job, it is really God revealing himself and re- revealing more about himself to us. Um, and so each, each chapter, each verse contains something that God wanted us to know. And uh, I know I've got good comments from uh, several of you about what God is teaching you through it. So we we'll hope we pray that that will continue. Um, next week we will uh, we'll continue in this, but the week after, of course, week after will be Thanksgiving weekend, so we'll take a week break and we'll have uh, Pastor Burdine preaching that night. Now, in uh, in chapter 15, we have what is Eliphaz's second speech to Job, and the second speech is a little bit less kind, a little bit less tactful than his first one was. Um, and basically, he has this approach of saying, listen, you didn't, you didn't listen to me the first time. But now, uh, Eliphaz has had the, the luxury of hearing Job respond. Well, we, we saw Job respond to the pain that he's in in chapter 3. We've seen Job respond to Eliphaz. We've seen Job respond to Bildad. We've seen Job respond to uh, Zophar. And he's, he's heard all of those responses. And by then, you would think he might go, Okay, maybe Job's got a point here, but he doesn't, right? In verse 5 of chapter 15, uh, it says, for, the, for thy mouth uttereth thy iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. He's, he's saying, look at your words are even showing me that I'm right, and you're wrong. Um, verse 6, thine own mouth condemn thee, and, and not I, yea, thine own lips testify against thee. So he, he says, hey, the things that you're saying are proving that you're wrong. But was it? It was so clear to him, wasn't it? It was so clear to Eliphaz that Job was wrong in his words approving it, yet we can look, if we see the whole picture, we go, no, his words were right. And, and he, this is not an uh, indication that he is wrong. Now, uh, what, what is man, verse 14, what is man that he should be clean, and that he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Uh, again, his doctrine is good. All men are unclean. Um, every, uh, let me see, chapter 
uh, yeah, chapter 15, verse 14, verse 15. Behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his own sight, in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water. So he's right, right? I mean, he has a good view of man. He just doesn't have a good view of the situation. He's misapplying the doctrine that he's teaching. Now, uh, let's go to... Uh, we, we've finished chapter 15, so we won't rehash the whole thing. Uh, so let's go to chapter 16. We're going to begin with verse 1. And he says this, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Now, just like in chapter 9, uh, I believe it's verse 2, in chapter 9, verse 2, Job says, hey, uh, I've heard all of this before. I know these truths, but listen, they don't apply to me. That's what he's saying. These don't apply to me. And so their, their misapplication of the, this truth, of their doctrine, the misapplication of it has made them miserable comforters. Now that's an oxymoron, isn't it? A miserable comforter. Now maybe somebody is a comforter and they're also a miserable person, but that's not likely either. But what Job is saying is you are miserable at being comforters. You're, you're not good at it. You're, in other words, you are greatly failing in your purpose. I believe that their purpose was to help Job. I believe that's what they came in. Now, they came into it with arrogance. You know, I, I've seen many preachers, and, and uh, hopefully I'm not like this, but I've seen many preachers that they get up in the pulpit and they are arrogant. But yet there's a part of them that are, is really trying to help. I, I'm going to be preaching Sunday morning. Um, Jesus um, said the, the James and John's mom, right? The, the sons of Zebedee, their mother... Salome, Salome, not Salome, uh, Salome, um, she, she comes and she says, hey, uh, can my son sit in your right hand, your left hand? And so we're going to deal with that. But one of the things that I'm talking about in that sermon is that leadership must be humility, and especially in church. Leadership is not like the leadership of the world. Leadership in church must be, uh, must be characterized by humility. So these guys, they come in and their arrogance is preventing them from seeing the situation the way it needs to be seen. And sometimes my arrogance prevents me from seeing things the way that they need to be seen. Verse 3. Shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldeth thee that thou answerest? Okay, so the word vain there, it's interesting, that is the word for wind. Okay? So your wind words. Now remember, it was Eliphaz that accused Job of being full of hot air. It was him that accused Job of being the one with windy speech. But Job says, shall vain words have an end? Is there going to be a time when you're going to stop? Is this what Job doesn't know? It's going to continue for about 20, about 15 more chapters. Um, but uh, he says, or in boldness that thou answerest, verse 4, I also could speak as you do. Now listen, he says, If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. So he says, listen, um, you're accusing me, okay? You're accusing me of being full of hot air. You're the one with a lot of hot air. Now this sounds like a child's argument back and forth, right? Um, but he's not being childish. He's simply saying, this is what you're accusing me of. You ever notice in, the, in politics... Whatever the one side accuses the other side of, it's typically what they're guilty of already. Um, it, then Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're full of wind. And Job says, listen, it's not me. You're the one full of wind. But he says, put yourself in my shoes. If you put yourself in my shoes, I could say the same, same things about you. And then I could wag my finger. I could wag my head at you and go, oh, 
Why, why won't you listen? Joseph says, I could, I could do that also. But, he says in verse 5, but I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the moving of my lips should assuage your grief or assuage your grief. Now, uh, Job says, he says, here's what I could do. I, I could, if I was in your shoes, I could say this. But here's what I would do. Right? There's a difference in what I could do versus what I would do. Uh, he says, I could, I could uh, strengthen you with my mouth and move the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. Now, that's not a word that we use, right? Uh, there is a, it's an obsolete word that is not used in English anymore, but it is, the, it is basically the same word as assuage, A-U-S-A-G-E, I think it is. Um, but it's basically the same thing. Does anybody know what that means? Relieve or take away. Yeah, is that in the notes in your Bible there, Joshua? Oh, okay. Uh, oh, and notes on your phone there? Yeah. So uh, it means to make something less intense. Okay? So here's what he's saying. He says, listen, I, I, here's what I would do. Now, he's not being arrogant. I, I think he's being truthful. Listen, here's what I would do if I was in your sho- If I was in my shoes, if I was in your shoes and you were in my shoes, I would strengthen you with my mouth. I would build you up. I would encourage you. And the moving of my lips would lessen the grief. Right? So what's happening with his friends is the movement of their lips and the words coming out are making his grief worse. And so Joseph says, I wouldn't do that. I would strengthen you. I would encourage you. I, I would bring relief in your grief. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. But I would bring relief in your grief. Now, we talked recently about Proverbs 27, 6, a great verse that tells us that the wounds of a friend are faithful. Right? They're good for us. We've talked, we talked about that last time. But these men, these men were not, were not giving him wounds of a friend. Okay? Um, in fact, here's what they did. They found this man who they know who's their friend. But they found him near death. And what did they do? They keep beating him. Instead of encouraging him, instead of building him up with truth and rightly applied truth, they're instead making things worse. And so uh, they were... They were not being honest evaluators of the situation. They were assuming the worst, and they were judging him based on those assumptions. And so in the midst of all this, Job has to stop his friend and say, listen, you're not doing this right. You're not being a good friend to me. You're not helping me through this situation. I, I, I think sometimes uh, trials and tribulation and turmoil, as, as we've called it here, when we go through that, we find out who our true friends are. Now, it, it's possible that we, we have friends who would truly be there for us if they knew the problem. Some of us are guilty about not telling anybody when something's bothering us, when something's going on. We don't tell anybody. We don't want anybody to know. We want to be strong. We want everybody to respect us. Sometimes we just don't tell people, and that's why they're not there for us. Okay, So we can't blame everybody else because they don't know what's going on. But there are times when you go through something, and that's when you're like, man, I could really use some encouragement. And that person who was supposed to encourage you instead discourages you. So instead of judging the facts, they were judging their perceptions. Now, I heard a, a, a sermon years ago by, uh, I can't remember his name, Doug Fisher, out in California somewhere, I think. And uh, I heard a sermon, it was called Beware of Your Perceptions. And uh, every sermon I ever heard from Doug Fisher was, he would use a New Testament and an Old Testament passage, and he would preach from both. Uh, but he used uh, what we're going to get to on Sunday night soon, where uh, Jacob goes back to meet Esau, right? 
Remember the last time Jacob and Esau met? It was, I'm going to kill you, I hate you. Right? That's what Esau said. And then he, he goes, and then years and years and years later, Jacob is freaked out because he's going to go see his brother. So he divides his, I'm getting ahead of my sermons here, but he divides his family into two different groups and all of his stuff so that if Esau is mad, he's only going to lose half his stuff, right? So he, he did, went through all of this. Why? Because of his perceptions. Uh, we have to be careful judging on our perceptions. There are so many times I catch myself, or maybe my wife catches me, or I catch my wife, and, and we say, oh, man, this person's doing this because of this, or, you know, especially, you know, with teenagers at school, you know, she's got that all the time, and uh, boy, they're just, and, and we have to think, step back and say, is that my perception, or is that reality? Because perception is not always reality. Their perception was, I see what, I see the results, that must mean this. And they're absolutely wrong. Now, verse 6, Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged. And though I forbear, what am I eased? Um, now, Job's words were not, his words were not coming back to comfort him. Um, you know, maybe, maybe getting some of those words out felt good. It's like when you got a, a mosquito bite and you itch it. Right? It, it feels good for a second, but it doesn't help the situation. Right? Um, or, you know, if you've got a wound and the doctor's like, don't touch it, don't, don't irritate it, don't bother it. And you're like, yeah, but it itches. I have to. I have to keep touching it. Um, he says, though I speak, my grief is not a switch. It's not relieved. It's not, it's not made less intense. Why? I think it's because of his friends. He says, and though I forbear, what am I eased? Job's friends have put him in a lose-lose situation. If I speak, my friends condemn me. Right? Okay, well, I guess I just don't speak because I feel like I can't win. If he's silent, he also finds no relief. So his friends, instead of being helpers, they are, um, well, what, what does he say in verse number, uh, verse number two? They're miserable comforters. So, verse 7. But now he hath made me weary. Thou hast made desolate all my company. And thou hast filled me with wrinkles, which is witness against me. Anybody else can uh, identify with being filled with wrinkles? No, don't. Um, and my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. He teareth me in his wrath who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath taken also he hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. Um, well, let me finish. His archers compass compassed me around about. And cleaveth my reins asunder, and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. That means his bile, his innards, right? He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. Now, here, sometimes I read Job, and I have no idea what he's saying. And I have to go through, and I have to go word by word, and I have to look up words. Okay, I don't know what, I don't understand this. This is really difficult to understand. That's how sometimes I read Job. 
But when I read verses 7 through 14, it's clear. Like, this is one of the most easy passages to understand what he's saying. Um, except, and here's the one exception to that. Job complains about losses, but who is he blaming? So let's go back to verse 7. But now he hath made me weary. Thou hast made desolate all my company. And hast filled me with wrinkles, which is witness against me, and my leanness rises up, uh, up in me, beareth witness to my face. He teareth me with his wrath. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpened. They have gaped upon me with their mouth. They have smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered. Verse 11. God had delivered. Okay, who is he blaming? Well, it can't be one person, right? Because he says they, they, they. But at the beginning in verse 7, he says, uh, He, uh, thou, singular, right? Thou hast filled me with wrinkles. Um, so, so here's what I think. I think in when he, verse 7, he refers to he and thou, singular. In verse 8, thou, singular. Verse 9, he and mine enemy, singular. Verse 10, they, plural. Verse 11, God. So I think in verse 11, I think what we're seeing here is that Job, Job says God delivered me to the ungodly and to the wicked. There's a combination of singular and plural. Job, I think, realizes that God is ultimately in control. But there are other agents at work. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness, right? We, we know that God is in control. We know that nothing happens that hasn't passed through the hands of God. But sometimes God has passed it through his hands, but he has then given it up to the enemy. And allowed someone else or something else to have control. So it's also possible that he, in verse 7, and I, I read this somewhere, but I don't know if I agree with it, but it's, it's interesting, that in verse 7, he hath made me weary, that he's talking about his grief, because in verse 6, though I speak, my grief is not a sweet, and though I forbear, what am I eased? So it's possible, according to some commentators, that when he says that he hath made me weary, he's weary, he's referring back to his grief in verse 6. Either way... Um, his grief has multiplied, and so now he refers to multiple griefs, if, if that's what it means. But the fact is here, Job feels trapped in a situation. I don't know that it's necessary that we understand every word that he says and what it's speaking of, although we want to, right? I had another pastor one time. I called. It was an older pastor, and I called him, and I said, here's what I'm seeing in this passage, and, and I just wanted to see what you thought. And, um, and he said, I, sometimes you can try to dig too deep. That was his response. And I thought, I don't agree with you. <laughs> I don't think, I, I think that, I'm not saying we have to dig deep every time, but I don't think you can dig too deep. I think that's why it's there, is we should dig. Uh, I kind of came to find out that he tends to be more of a surface preacher when he preaches. Um, but he, he looks and he sees that God has delivered him to the wicked. So I, I don't know, yeah, hold on a second. I don't know that we need to know it all, although I want to. <laughs> Uh, to understand that Job is just saying, hey, God's in control. And these other forces, God has allowed them, these other forces, God's turned me over to them so that he can have his way, so that can have his way, so that God can test me in my life. What were you going to say? Have you ever heard that passage where it talks about they smite me on the cheek and they bring me low and whatever? Yeah. It's referring to Christ? Yeah. 
You what? I'm not getting ahead of your notes, am I? Oh, no. No, I, I, I wasn't. Go ahead, though. Explain. No, I mean, Elaborate. It, it just, it, when, when you read that, that passage, it sounds very prophetic about what Christ is going to go yeah. through when he's leading up to his crucifixion. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it, it just seems to stand out as being similar to some of the Psalms, you know, where, where um, David says in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then Christ says it from the cross. It's right. It's like foreshadowing towards Christ. Yeah. It, it, do you, I, I don't know if this is that, um, but you could see some... Um, yeah, you could see some parallels with it, for sure. Yeah. Um, it, the, you know, the book of Job is, is considered a part of poetry, right? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, I think. Yeah. Uh, those are the books of poetry. Um, and so it is poetic to read. It, not the kind of poetry we think of, like Roses, Red, Violets, or Blue. Um, whatever. Um, I, yeah. Anyway, um, I, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna make fun of Jeff, but I'm like, uh, so I don't know. That. I got, I gotta get that out of my mind. All right. So he looks and he sees that God has delivered him to the wicked. He looks around and sees that his loved ones are gone, and who remains? The only people that remain, speaking in the Job's life right now, are judging him. He, you know, even his wife, I mean, we haven't heard from her for a couple chapters, well, a bunch of chapters, right? Chapter 2, I think. Or is that chapter 1? Chapter 1. Um, whatever it was. But we haven't heard from her in a while, but even her. It's like everybody that's speaking to him is, you know, negative. You know, she said, curse God and die. Like, hey, this isn't going to get better. I, and I think she truly hated to see him like that. I'm not trying to tear her down or anything. But everybody that's speaking to him is just judging him. We don't, we gotta, we're good at judging people, aren't we? Anybody else besides me good at judging people? Yeah, okay. I'm good at judging people. Right, right, yeah. Peggy, so would you go to the hospital and use that same language on somebody laying there in the bed? Well, you know what? This must mean that there's some sin in your life. You know, you're going in for the same surgery again. God's still trying to get a hold of you, I guess. Yeah, yeah be the last hospital visit I'd make, probably. Um, or I'd be in the hospital after that, depending on who it was. Yeah, you're right, Peggy. Um, okay, let's go to verse 15. Because I, I, my goal is still to get through both of these chapters. Alright, so, verse 15. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping and, my, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Not for any injustice in my hands. Also, my prayer is pure. I don't know what for sure. I don't know for sure what it means that he sewed sackcloth on his skin. I don't think he literally took a needle and thread and sewed the sackcloth on his skin. But what is sackcloth made of? What's that? Yeah, but what's it? It's, it, it, it's I would say it's. We would compare it to burlap. Uh, a camel hair. Yeah. All right. Uh, now maybe they made it out of different things, but my my understanding is it's made out of camel hair, and they say camel hair is very prickly. And it, so it, it was, the sackcloth wasn't, it, it was something that was meant to basically bring, make you uncomfortable. And so I, I think, and this is my opinion, I think when he says he sewed sackcloth on his skin, it means maybe that sackcloth was so tight or whatever it was, the way it was sitting on him, it was just like needles poking him everywhere. And he, it was coarse, it was 
bringing him great discomfort. So on top of the boils that he has on his skin, he's now got these prickly, you know, coarse needles basically sticking into his wounds and into his skin, bringing him very great discomfort. And so his mourning contained sackcloth, dust on his head, weeping, and the shadow of death. But Job remained resolute. He said, not for any injustice in my hands. Also my prayer is pure. He's saying here, I've lived a pure life. He's not saying I've lived a sinless life. He's saying, but I've lived a pure life. I I am walking with my God. He prayed daily. He prayed for his kids while they were having a party. Verse 18. O earth, cover not thou my blood. Let my cry have no place. Now, I don't... This is interesting, right? He says, he, he says, O earth... He's not actually praying to the earth, but he's, he's saying basically that the earth would not cover my blood and let my cry have no place. Do we have another place? Can you think of another place in the Bible where uh, somebody's blood cried out? What's that, Lynn? When uh, Yep. So Cain killed Abel. And the Bible tells us that the blood of Abel cried out from the ground. So if Job did not live through this turmoil, and he expected not to, I think he kind of wanted to not live through this trial, right? We see that too. Uh, Then he wanted his blood to cry out his innocence. Now maybe to the ears of God, but God already knows, maybe to the ears of of his friends, uh, maybe it would be a good learning lesson for his friends, okay? You know what, I'm gone now. Maybe you have another friend someday that you can be a better friend to than you have been to me. Verse 19. Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. So he says, remember a couple verses ago, God turned me over to the wicked and desolate, right? Wicked. No, it's desolate. But God turned me over. I know God's behind my suffering. But he says, I also know this. I also know that my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. He knew that God knew the truth. He knew the truth was not lost. You ever feel like you're the only one who knows the truth? And maybe you are the only person on this earth that knows the truth, but God knows. You've been accused of something. You've been, uh, rumors being spread that you're this or you're that. And you say, nobody believes me. God knows the truth. Verse 20. My friends scorn me, but my eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. So, once again, his friends, they've failed him. But, who does he keep looking to? His eyes, his tears, pour, his eyes pour out tears to God. And then he says in verse 21 that one might plead for a man with his, with his God, with God, as a man pleadeth for his angel. What would we call that man who's pleading for you? We would call him an intercessor, right? So he's pleading for an intercessor with God. We know that this role is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Romans 8.34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? So when, when Salome, 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 I think is actually, if I remember right, Salome, uh, the mother, uh, that would be Zebedee's, right? Zebedee's wife? Yeah. Um, when, when she said, hey, can my voice sit on your right hand, your left hand? He says, it's not, that wasn't mine to give. That's not mine to give. But who's already at the right hand? Jesus. That's his spot, at the right hand of God. All right? Now, uh, the phrase, oh, that one might plead. So I was looking that up. It is a third-person singular verb. Okay? 
I, you, he, she, it, we, you, they, right? So a third person singular would be I, you, he, right? Third person singular, um, but it's a verb. So it's, it's Hebrew, it's different, right? But it is it's, it's when he says that one might plead. The word one really could read, oh, that he might plead. Some commentators claim that Job said this in anticipation of the Messiah. Now, I don't know for sure that Job had that knowledge. I think that's speculation. But how much more encouraged ought we to be to know that we have one that does plead for us? And we're told that in Romans chapter 8. That we know that we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And he's there pleading our case with the Father. Now, verse 22. When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. So Job believed that he did not have that he Job believed that he didn't have an intercessor, right? Because he says, Oh, that we would have one, thinking maybe maybe thinking that the Messiah would come someday. But he felt that after this very short time on earth he would go and not return. Maybe he thought, Oh, that would be great to have an intercessor here on this earth, but um, you know what, pretty soon I'm going to be face to face with God anyway. Maybe that's what he's saying. Now, we, we know that he's all over the place. I think John, John was texting me uh, today. John was at 19, uh, verse number, towards the end. Where is it? I know that my Redeemer lived. Uh, uh, verse 26, or verse 27 of 19. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. But my reins be consumed within me. So we, he he does know that that's coming. So I think in verse twenty two he's saying I'm going to go there. You know I I need I would love to have an intercessor right now between me and God, but I'm not going to need it long because I'm going to be there with him soon. All right, chapter seventeen. My breath is corrupt. My days are extinct. The graves are ready for me. Obviously, Job feels that again. Continuing from the last chapter, he feels that his time. Here, it's about over. And I think part of him wanted this. Yet, part of him still wanted to be vindicated before he died. Verse 2. Are there not mockers with me, and doth not mine eye continue in their provocation? We know his friends weren't being friendly. His friends were not being helpful. They were mocking him. Their mocking was continual. Verse 3. Lay down now, put me in a surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? For thou hast hid their heart from understanding. Therefore, shalt thou not exalt them. All right. So Jesus laid down, now put me a surety with thee. All right. I, I believe here he's talking to God. He asked God for an agreement to be made with him. He knew his friends would not be much help since their minds were not open to understanding the truth. Right. Um, we've talked about this. Well, he. So let me, I'll come back. He, he put the responsibility on God. For their inability to understand. But then says that they would not be exalted. So they're going to be held responsible for their failures. So who is he blaming? Is he blaming God or is he blaming his friends? Well, he says, for thou hast hid their, hid in their, hid their heart from understanding. Therefore thou shalt not exalt them. I told you this before. I, I, I believe, this is what I believe. I believe that God does not harden the heart of a soft-hearted person. He hardens the heart of someone who has already rejected God. And I think here, and this is not the same thing, but I think here, God has hid their heart from understanding. Why? 
because there's so much arrogance in them, he's not going to show it to them. They have sin in their lives, and so he says, I'm not going to show it to them. So I think that's what he's saying. That that's why they're not going to be exalted. They're going to be held responsible. To be held responsible means you have the ability to respond, and they're not responding right. They're arrogant. They're treating him poorly. They're not seeking the truth. And because of that, God is going to hide their heart from understanding. So uh, it wasn't that God dictated everything or that God dictated that they would uh, that they would accuse Job of all this stuff. It's not that God was doing that, but he had, they, had blinded, they had blinded themselves with their arrogance and their self-righteous judgment. So God did not let them understand Job. That, that, that's Job's take on this. Verse 5. He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children shall fail. So Job refused to speak flattery to his friends. You ever had somebody tell something to you and you're like, all right, yep, okay, sounds good. When you know it doesn't sound good. <laughs> you know, but you're like, okay, yep, sure, sounds good. And you, you, you have no intention of doing what they said, but you lead them to believe that you agree with what they said, right? That's, that's called speaking flattery. Job refused to speak flattery to his friends. He called out their failure. It'd be disingenuous for him to affirm what they were saying, wouldn't it? And so he doesn't do that. That doesn't mean you have to be a jerk and call everybody out on everything, right? That doesn't mean that just because it's true, it should be said, right? There are things that don't need to be said. You can just keep your mouth shut, you know? Um, I'm not going to. We're just going to move on before I get myself in trouble. My wife's in here now, and i got to filter what I say. Just kidding. Uh, he hath made me, verse 6, he hath he has made me also a byword of the people. And aforetime I was as a tablet. Now these are words that are pretty much um, obsolete for us. Uh, byword means that God had made him satire. Or God had made him non-genuine, basically. Or not real. And that he was a tabret. A tabret was something that they would spit on. Okay? So he says, this is what God has done me. He hath made me. Uh, now, verse 7. Mine eye also is dim by reason of sorrow. And all my members are as a shadow. So his eyes were weak. Why were his eyes weak? Because of the sorrow. Maybe he had cried so much his eyes were weak. Maybe his eyes, he couldn't see clearly uh, through the tears. I don't know for sure. But it's because of the sorrow that he was enduring. And his body was just a shadow of what it had been. All, all my members are as a shadow. They're, not, they're just a shadow of what they once were. Verse 8, upright men shall be astonied at this, and the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. The righteous also shall hold on his way. And he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. So Job is still confident that the victory uh, would come, and victory would come to the righteous. Upright men will be astonished or astonished by what had happened. And he would be stirred up against the hypocrite. And then he says the righteous would become stronger and stronger. Verse 10, but as for you all, do ye return and come now? For I cannot find one wise man among you. Ouch. <laughs> Take that. Um... So you think you're all wise, you're all spewing things in your arrogant voice, um, but I can't find one wise one uh, among you. I, I was watching this debate between uh, prominent conservative uh, 
political activist and then a uh, <coughs> who's at Oxford University, um, which uh, is obviously very liberal. And I was watching them go back and forth, and these people would come up with this arrogant, and they had their whole thing prepared that they were going to ask, and he just tore them apart. <laughs> you know, they came up arrogant, and they walked away with their tail between their legs. You know, because uh, he uh, was much better at it than they were. Um, they think themselves wise, but they became fools. Verse, uh, uh, where am I? Did I read verse? Oh, yeah. All right, verse 10, did I read that? Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lynn. Uh My days are past. Jeff's like, don't go back and do that again. Let's just get this done. My days are past. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is short because of darkness. If I wait, the grave is my house. I have made my bed in the darkness. I have said to corruption, thou art my father. To the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? They shall go down to the bars, to the bars of the pit. When thou restest together, when our rest together is in the dust. So, Job. I, you know, here I think again he's again talking about his death and the, what he thinks is really imminent, um, and that death would put him in a place of darkness. If light, if life was symbolized by light, then darkness is what symbolizes death, or at least his perception of death at this moment. In verse one, Job says that the graves are ready for him. Now that means tombs or seculars. Okay, so. Literally, when you think of a grave, you think of a cemetery and the pit that is dug uh, where the body is put. Um, but in verse 13, if I wait, the grave is mine house. So the same word in English there, um, but that word is the and the word for pit in verse 16, they're both the word sheol. Anybody else, anybody know what the word sheol is also translated as? Hell, right? Um, we years ago, uh, many of you know the story about the bus accident that I was in with uh, some of our kids and my wife and my kids were all there, and um, we were coming back from. It wasn't my fault, by the way. Um, you're like, aren't you? Are you still driving the bus? Um, the, the mechanic failure. It's always a mechanic's fault. So uh, Bill remembers that. That was that was possibly the worst day of my life. Um, I had to call my I call my dad. Can you bring another bus? I broke this one. So uh, anyway, we were coming back from a camp, and that camp, I was the preacher at that camp, and it was uh, they had flooding. I mean, uh, it was the power went out. They they sent for a generator. They were backing the generator down the pathway, and it slid off the side of the hill. Um, the, the toilets wouldn't flush because they couldn't pump water up the mountain. So. Uh, I was, me and a, you know, a couple other guys were going to get five-gallon buckets full of water from the swimming pool so we could flush toilets. It was miserable. You know what they called that camp? They called it Camp Shield. <laughs> that's not the real name of the camp, but that's what the other people called it. And by the end, we knew why. Okay. Uh, now, the word shield is uh, often translated grave or hell. David wrote this, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I free from thy presence? If I send up in the heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. David was not saying if I go to a place of torment. He was saying if I go to the grave. Okay, 
Um, verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead thee and thy right hand shall hold me. That's Psalm 139. So David knew that God was going to go with him everywhere. I don't think that Job has quite the understanding of that David has. Um, in fact, he says in verse 14, I said to corruption, thou art my father. You know, I'm, I'm falling apart. Corruption is my father. The worm, which is going to eat me up too, that's my mother and sister. And now, and where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? They shall go down to the bars of the pit or to Sheol. And when our rest together is in the dust. Um, so back to Sheol. Here's what I here's what I believe about Sheol. Um, prior to the death of Jesus, all uh, all people that died went to this grave, the place of the grave. They went to hell, okay, but not hell in the torment sense. Um, right. Yeah, I'm getting there. Don't teach my lesson, Peggy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so yeah, so no, she's right though. So. Um, it, there's a my wife, my wife and I were just talking about this. I taught a lesson years ago and I drew it on the board. But uh, what my perception of this is: so there's this place that uh, hell, um, and there was in that was a place called Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise. Uh, so Jesus said to that that uh, man on the cross, he said, "Now Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom." And Jesus didn't say, "Today thou will be with me in heaven." He said, "Today thou shalt be with me in paradise." So before the death of Jesus, everybody who died went to Sheol. But in Sheol is paradise, Abraham's bosom, right? The Bible says that there's a great gulf fixed between them. Okay, remember the rich man Lazarus? And the rich man says, um, you know, can you dip the finger, tell my, how do I have this right? Tell my friends, tell my family, whatever, and dip the finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in this flame. Remember that? Um, and so there is this place. So all of it is Sheol. Part of it is paradise. And there's a great gulf fixed between them. And then the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, did Jesus go to hell? Well, he didn't go to a place of torment. Jesus didn't go to hell to suffer for your sins. He, uh, in fact, when he's on the cross, he said, what? It is finished. He had done all that needed to be done. He went to Sheol, I believe, and he led captivity captive. He all those in Abraham's bosom, and he took them to heaven. So that's what I believe about Sheol. So when you read about the pit and Sheol, it's talking about the grave. Before the death of Jesus, it was all one place, but two divisions with a great gulf fixed between them. There you go. There's my mental picture for you. Hope it made sense. All right, let me let me close with this. Job did not understand everything that all all the things that were happening. Didn't understand all of where Abraham's bosom was and that Jesus would come and take him out. He didn't understand that. He simply was prepared for and longed for his death. But listen, Job never tried to take his life. He never asked anyone else to take his life. He knew that it was only God's decision. Only God has the right to give life. He is the one who sustains life and he is the only one who has the right to take life. Now you say, well, what about in war? He can delegate that responsibility, and I believe he does. Okay, um, But I don't have the right to take my own life. Job did not have the right to take his own life. So as far as Job's view of the afterlife, we can see that there is some inconsistency in his words based on the emotional state he was in. So we're not going to build our doctrine on Job's perception of what happens, especially there in verses 11 through 16, and we've seen it several times through the book so far. 
But we base our doctrine on the whole of Scripture. So we can't take one verse and try to build a doctrine on it, especially when it's a historical narrative of what happened to Job. But what we can do is see, uh, we can learn from Job's life, and we can see the anguish that he was in. Um, but he does have, and we'll get to that probably next time, he does have some good understanding of what happens after he dies. Um, so that's it. Next week, we will continue, and uh, I believe next week we're going to see Bill Dad again, am I right? Is that verse 19, or chapter 18? Yeah, so Bill Dad, we'll see him again, we'll hear what he has to say again next week, and then uh, ch- chapter 19. Maybe we'll get to two chapters, but don't hold your breath. Uh, we'll hopefully get Bill Dad's speech and Job's response next week in chapters 18 and 19. And we'll go back to Zophar again, okay? All right, let's pray, and let's be dismissed. Thank you for being here. I hope this is helping you. And um, yeah, hopefully this is helping you for maybe what you're going through now, maybe what you're going to go through in the future. Thank you for joining us today on the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about First Baptist Church, visit us online at fbchazelpark.com.